Greetings to you, brothers and sisters, at Christ Community Church in Plainfield. I wish so much that I could be with you in person right now. I uh, just yesterday received word that I tested positive for coronavirus, and so I am uh, quarantining myself. I, I would ask for your prayers for health and recovery. It's pretty frustrating because I'm supposed to, right now, be on my way to a rehearsal and rehearsal dinner for my sister-in-law, who's scheduled to be getting some married tomorrow, but I'm not going to that, and that is very hard. It's very hard to miss out on that, um, and it's very hard to miss out on being there in person along with you. I wish so much that I could be. I'm really grateful for you. I'm thankful for how God is drawing our congregations to each other. Orland Park had an overwhelmingly positive vote in favor of moving forward with the engagement with, uh, with Christ Community Church, and I'm excited to begin the work of joining together our two congregations. Um, I would appreciate your prayers for health and recovery, and I'd appreciate your prayers for um, this, this uh, merger of Christ Community Church and Orland Park Christian Reformed Church as well, because unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. Well, today, we're going to be taking a look at Psalm 44, and so I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 44. Psalm 44 is a little bit longer of a psalm. It's of the sons of Korah. It's 26 verses. I'm going to be reading the whole thing, and um, it's really beautiful. It's really beautiful. Psalm 42 and 43 and 44 are all written by the sons of Korah. 45 is as well. 46 is as well. And then after that, we, uh, we, hear, we see some more from them. And then we sort of turn into uh, some of the Psalms of David after this. But the sons of Korah are known for their vivid imagery and the beauty with which they, uh, they create their poems. And I think you'll see some of that in this psalm here, Psalm 44. Let's give our attention now to the reading of God's word from Psalm 44. O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordained salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes, through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me, but you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God, We have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You've made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You've made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You've sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You've made us the taunt of our neighbors the derision and scorn of those around us. You've made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long, my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger, all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you and have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way, yet you've broken us in the place of jackals, 
and covered us with a shadow of death. If we'd forgotten the name of our God or had spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we're killed all the day long, we're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Amen. Would you bow your head with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beautiful words of this psalm, Psalm 44. We pray that as we hear these words preached, that you might enable them to come alive. We pray that we might hear and heed what it is that you have for us in, these, in this beautiful psalm. We pray that anything that I say, if anything that I say doesn't come from you, you'd make it fall to the ground and pass away and be forgotten. We pray that everything that is from you would remain and strengthen our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. God, we pray that you would speak now And we pray that you would bless all of these hearers with a deepening trust in you, Lord Jesus. All this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. In 1985, Bruce Springsteen released the single uh, called Glory Days. I think that the album came out in 84. In 85, the single was officially released, Glory Days. It's a song that's also a story a story that's true. Springsteen in the liner notes of the album Born in the USA said that the first verse was true, the second verse was mostly true, and that the third verse was happening now. In that first verse, the true story of the song, he runs into a guy in a bar who is a big baseball player in high school. They sit down and all this guy keeps talking about are glory days. Well, they'll pass you by, says the chorus. Glory days in the wink of a young girl's eye. Glory days. Glory day That's the first verse. The song ends with Springsteen saying that he thinks that he'll grow old, just trying to recapture a little bit of the glory of those days that have passed. And the song ends sadly, saying that time slips away and it leaves you with nothing but boring stories of glory days. It's a song that's really well loved because a lot of folks can resonate with that. The good old days have passed. The difficulty is life now. It's not like life in the past. Those glory days are, are done with. They were back then. They don't exist now. Now is the time of difficulty. Then, that was the time of goodness and joy and celebration. Right now is just the time of difficulty. The glory days are past. And our psalm seems to operate in that same framework, doesn't it? As we read through it, doesn't it seem as though the psalm is operating in that same sort of way? The days that have passed are the good ones. The days that we have at present are the difficult ones. The glory days are gone. Our fathers told us of times that were wonderful, but those times have all passed. These times are difficult, and the difficulty of the present time is substantial, and they aren't merited through any conscious sin or conscious rebellion, and yet today seems nothing like the glory days of old, the glory days of the people of Israel that all the people have heard tell of. What's happened? What's happened to the promises of God? Why is all this difficulty taking place? What could God possibly be doing? Why would God allow bad things to happen to good people? Why would God allow bad things to happen to his people? Where is God when the glory days are gone? And are the glory days just in the past? 
Well, we're going to take a look at the three different movements within this great psalm, this the song of the faith, Psalm 44. We're going to be talking about first the glory days. That's the first part of the psalm. Then we're going to be talking about the, the difficult days. That's the second part of the psalm. And last, we're going to be talking about redemption. So let's start with the glory days. In the glory days, in those days gone by, God seemed to always be there. And those who are faithful have passed down the stories from generation to generation. By his power, God drove out the nations before Israel and and granted them the promised land. And he planted them there so that they would grow and bear fruit. And these stories contain theological truths. Israel didn't conquer the promised land because they were stronger because they had more able swordsmen. It wasn't because they had the best tacticians that they were able to take the promised land, but because God was gracious to them and God's face shone on them and God's arm was strong. The echo of the high priestly blessing shows up here in this first part of the psalm. The Lord bless you and keep you is that high priestly prayer. The Lord uh, make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. At the end of this sermon, I'm going to close in prayer and then I'm going to speak that benediction over you and it's a beautiful one. This notion that God looks at us and his face shines on us. It beams on us. His very face is a benediction. And in those glory days of old, it seemed like the people felt that reality. It felt like they... They knew that reality presently and deeply. They experienced it powerfully and nearly. They knew God delights in us. God is giving us victory. God gives us his strength. God allows his face to shine on us. And that reality, the confidence that these people had in God's faithfulness in the past, gives to them confidence for the present. Did you notice that verses four through eight are filled with words of incredible confidence? Let me read them for us again. You are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you, we push down our foes. Through your name, we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me, but you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God, we have boasted continually and we will give thanks to your name forever. Those are confident words in the fact that God is going to deliver for his people. And that confidence is not misplaced. There's always a reason. The the faithfulness of God in the past is always a reason for confidence in the present. There's a gospel song that I love, and it goes like this. Trust and never doubt. Jesus will surely bring you out. He's never failed me yet. And I've heard people critical of it. He hasn't failed me yet, you know, but he might fail me in the future is what some people have said. But that's not the point of the song. The song is to demonstrate confidence because we know that God has been faithful in the past. We can trust that he's going to be faithful in the future. He has not failed me yet at one point in my life. So therefore, I can be confident that he will be faithful in the future. God's faithfulness in the past is always reason for confidence in the, in the present. And we have more reason than the sons of Korah did for us to be confident in the present because we have seen the most faithful act of God in the past. And that is the cross of Christ Jesus. 
the faithfulness of Christ Jesus in his life that was lived for us, his death on the cross that was for us, his resurrection from the dead, wherein he gives to all of us who trust in Jesus the righteousness that he merited for us. Man, that is faithfulness in the past. And any time that you need to be confident in the present, look to the work of Jesus finished in the past, which is sufficient for you now and gives you confidence in this moment. The faithfulness of God in the past is always a reason for confidence in God in the present. Jesus has died and the Father has raised him from the dead. And because Jesus was faithful to the point of death, you can trust him today and that can be your confidence today and your comfort today that you belong body and soul in life and in death to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. But then there's a problem because it seems as though God isn't dealing with his people today like he did in those glory days, in the days that have gone by. And the psalm shifts. After that word, Selah, if, if you, your Bibles are still open, you can see that verse eight ends with that word, Selah. And then verse nine has this big transition and all the language is different. Because while God was so faithful and so near to his people in the glory days, things are really bad right now. The people of Israel are rejected and disgraced. The Lord God hasn't gone out with the armies of Israel. They've been turned back from the foe. Haters have gotten the spoils of war and not the people of God. God's people are like sheep for the slaughter. They've been scattered. God sold them out for a small price and they're a laughing stock. and it isn't their fault according to the psalm right here. And it's not their fault. It's not because of faithfulness, faithful, it's not because of faithlessness to the covenant. It's not because they have walked away from the commands of God. It's not because they have turned to an idol or a false deity of one of the nations that was in the land before the people of Israel came. It's not because of any of those things. What the psalm writers say is that if they had turned to a different God, God would have known that because he knows all things. They say that that's not what they've done. And yet, and yet, they are experiencing what feels like God turning his back on them. They don't feel like they're living in the glory days any longer. They haven't rejected God, but it feels like God's rejected them. And so there's a great deal of concern and weariness and, and despair. I feel like Psalm 44 is a beautiful psalm for the church right now. I mean, doesn't it seem like this is the way that things are within the church right now? Like we've got difficult days now? My grandfather was um, a major mentor for me. He went to be with the Lord just this last November at 93 years old. And I remember from the time that I was young talking to him about church and, and the things of God and the things about the people of God. And I remember that he would spend long times telling me of the stories of him coming up at a specific time in American history. He talked about the fact that there were all of these leaders in, in many different traditions that he could look to and, and trust and, and think highly of. He talked about Fulton Sheen, who was a priest who had a CBS show on television every week. It was the highest rated show on television. A Catholic priest he's talking about biblical principles and he said my this this medium of television is going to be used to just spread the message of the bible to every home in america isn't this wonderful how god is going to make use of this 
technology for the cause of the gospel. He, we talk about Billy Graham. Billy Graham was a, um, you know, was a, a very famous evangelism, and an evangelical Christian. My grandfather got to participate in one of the crusades that Billy Graham had here, here in the Chicagoland area. Billy likes to have apparently one veteran that was on stage at all times. My grandfather was a Navy veteran, and so he wore his dress blues, and he offered the benediction at the close of the evening, and he said that he was sitting right next to Billy Graham, two seats away from him when, when Billy sat down, and all of these people, hundreds and thousands of people walked down to give their life to the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, the gospel is going out in power all throughout America. There is so much that God is doing. And then he talked about how even in, um, even in the mainline world, you have had theologians like H. Richard Niebuhr, who was a respected theologian within the academy and was willing to say something like, liberal Christianity and liberal Christianity, a God without wrath creates men without sin to be brought into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. And he offered that as a critique within mainline Christianity, a respected academic. So my grandfather said, look at all these wonderful ways that the teaching of scripture and the gospel was going forth. Now it doesn't feel like we have that any longer. When I was growing up, when I was in middle school and high school, my church encouraged me to read Bill Hybels. Youth group leaders recommended Joshua Harris as somebody who was talking about uh, purity. Rob Bell came and spoke at my college, and uh, a lot of people were saying, you know, he's really captured the world. He's one of these evangelicals that's really going to get the gospel message out there. Mark Driscoll became a regular podcast that I listened to along with my roommates. And when I started getting interested in apologetics, one of my friends said, I know the perfect person to listen to. It's Ravi Zacharias. And each one of those leaders has fallen in one way or another either through bullying or sexual abuse or walking away from the faith? Where are the leaders that a, that a pastor like me can look to? Where are the leaders that I can point my grandson, Lord willing, someday to and say, hey, these were the people that God was making use of. It seems like those respected, well thought of, godly Christian leaders in a wide variety of different contexts and backgrounds, it seems like that's something of the glory days. It doesn't seem like something that's present now, that's happening now. And it would be silly, it'd be foolish for me to talk about this without referencing the persecuted church because in America, we don't have the level of persecution that exists globally. I mean, we, we have, sure, we have... Leaders that have proven to be faithless, but we don't fear for our lives when we gather to worship. There can, there can be soft persecution. There can be people that dismiss us or are rude to us or mean to us and unkind of us. And I don't want to diminish how difficult it is can, to bear that as a Christian, but it is not the kind of daily persecution that many Christians face across the globe. The last hundred years have seen more people killed for their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ than any century that came before. It's been the century of martyrs. What happened to the promises of God? And sometimes it seems like those who are the most faithful experience the hardest times. One of my closest friends in college was a man named Brian. He was a faithful Christian who was such an example to me of how one should live following the Lord Jesus, trusting in him. I remember spending time with his family and being like, this is why, this is a godly family. There was so much love between his father and his mother and, and, and among his siblings, and every one of them had this very evident, clear love for the Lord Jesus that was demonstrative. They were demonstrative about it. They would demonstrate it to everyone that was watching and listening. I was so captivated by this family, this godly family. 
And then just after graduation from college, I got a call from Brian and he said that his sister had um, had what the doctors thought was pneumonia. And as they were treating her, they realized that it was a very aggressive lung cancer that required an immediate procedure. And so they put her into surgery, but in surgery there was a blood clot and, uh, and they, they, they couldn't solve and fix that while the surgery was going on. His sister died on the operating room table all of a sudden, tragedy. And so me and, and, and some other friends, we all went to Iowa and we listened to his father who was studying to be a pastor give the message at the funeral where he buried his daughter. And we all went home. Shortly after that funeral service, Brian's mother got inoperable brain cancer. And six months later, we all drove back to Iowa and watched the same man this time bury his wife, who had just buried his daughter. The most faithful of families, the most faithful of people experiencing what felt like God turning his back to them. And Brian and his family still trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I rejoice in that. But I wouldn't blame anyone in that context who would be like, what is God doing? Why isn't he faithful now like he used to be in the glory days? Uh, These are reasonable questions. Where is God? What happened to his promises? Are the glory days all just done and gone? Are they all in the past? What happened to the promises of God? Well, it's important to see how that works out as we see this passage taken up in the New Testament. I want to encourage you to grab your Bibles and turn with me to Romans 8. It's a wonderful, wonderful section of Scripture. And you may even have picked up on this as we, as we were going through this. I want you to take a look at, with me at one verse in particular. One verse in particular. Verse 22 of Psalm 44. Psalm 44 verse 22 says, Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now keep that verse in your mind as we turn to Romans chapter 8. I'm going to turn there along with you. And I I just, I, I I hope this becomes clear as we take a look at this here. So turn with me to Romans chapter 8. And I'm going to read one of these well-known sections of Scripture, starting at verse 31, working our way to the end of the chapter. Romans 8, starting at verse 31. What then shall we say to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charges against God's elect? It is God who justified. Who, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written. And then note what uh, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, quotes here. For your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
So what does it mean when we experience all of the difficulty, all of the hardship, all of those times where we feel like we're being slaughtered for the sake of Christ Jesus? Does it mean that God's promises have failed? Does it mean that we've been separated from him? Does it mean that he has turned his back to us? Does it mean that he is far away? No. Romans 8 takes this very section of scripture and says, in the midst of all of that hardship, it's all for the sake of God, And in all of it, God is not distanced from us. He's not far from us. He's making use of all of that to his glory and for his purposes. God's promises have not failed. No. In all of the hardship, in all of the difficulty, in all of the pain, and I don't know what difficulty or hardship or pain you might be feeling right now specifically. I know some of what you're experiencing just more broadly in the American church life. But I don't know what specifically you might be feeling, but no matter what it is, none of it is evidence that God has turned his back to you. None of it is evidence that God has failed or his promises have failed. None of it means that you've been separated from him. No, in the midst of all of that difficulty or hardship, you, we, the church, were more than conquerors through him who loved us. And there is not a thing in this world that will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in fact, It's for God's sake that we experience some of this. God's doing something in it and through it. He's working within us a particular and a peculiar glory that will be revealed in us when we are glorified. He's doing something through all of the difficulty or hardship that you might be experiencing right now today. God's accomplishing something. He's doing something. So trust him in that. All of this means that the glory days are the days that are to come. For every single Christian, the best days are yet to come. The best days are yet to come. The glory days aren't just in the past. The glory days are those days that are coming when Christ Jesus will be revealed and all of the hardship that we have experienced for his name's sake will be shown to be worthwhile. It's all doing something. There's a purpose to all of it. And so, what do we do? We who are experiencing hardship or difficulty or loneliness, alienation, famine or sword? What do we do when we feel, you know, kind of in our bones that that things are tough right now for the church or for us individually? Well, the end of Psalm 44 gives to us the way of dealing with it. It isn't to say that God doesn't know. It isn't to say that God isn't powerful to save. It's, It's to pray this kind of bold prayer for redemption and salvation. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up and come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. God is powerful enough to save and redeem. God hears and knows. And so we are called to pray these kind of bold prayers. Awake, God. Wake up, God. It feels like you're sleeping and you've abandoned us. So wake up, redeem and save us, please, for the glory of your name. That is the kind of prayer that you can pray because you have an intimate relationship with the Father that has been born of Christ Jesus. And so pray that kind of bold prayer. And know that nothing will separate you from the love of God. His promises have not failed. The glory days are not gone and past. The glory days are the days to come. Hallelujah. Praise Jesus. Amen. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you that for all those who are in Christ Jesus, the glory days are the days yet to come. What a glorious God you are. And I pray for all of those who are experiencing distress right now, Lord. Let them know that it will not separate them from your love. And please awake. Rouse yourself. Don't reject us forever. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.